The Trek Files, Season 8, Episode 20, Star Trek Season 3 Writer's Memo, May 2nd, 1968. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. All right, Star Trek fans. Yes, I mean all of you, you canonistas. <laughs> yeah, you tech heads out there, you history buffs, you people who love Star Trek and, and the history of then and, and now, what it means for us today. In short, I'm talking, yes, about all you Trekophiles spelled with an F. We've got a wonderful guest this week. We've got a wonderful memo from right out of the golden age of, well, Maybe the slightly tarnished golden age of the original series, early third season. Uh, we'll take a look. It's right there on our page, facebook.com slash the Trek Files. It's there as always. Now, here's an audio sample, but you want to stick around and come right back. Take a look, and then I'll be back with this week's special guest. Spock Spring. I spoke to Lee Cronin about the antagonists using Spock's brain against the Enterprise people, and he seemed delighted with the suggestion. I know you have spoken with him about revisions on the script, and I expect he will have the new revisions in my hand before the end of the week. I asked him to be prepared to discuss Wink of an Eye the day he brings in the Spock's brain final. Oh, Trekophiles, if we're talking about Wink of an Eye and Spock's brain and, well, you know we're talking third season original series. I mean, I warned you. <laughs> but hopefully, kind of a, a new wrinkle on the third season and actually what it means, what some of these entries mean for Star Trek ever since and the way TV is made. And you know what? If I'm talking about the way TV is made, I, I, think, I think he made such a hit with us. How did it take so long? To have longtime Star Trek assistant director, uh, first assistant, second assistant. He came up the ladder. Now he is teaching. Uh, Mike Demerit, it is so great to have you back on the show. I love talking to you about all this nuts and bolts stuff because you come at it from so many different angles. And you were there for so many years during the Berman era. But thank you for coming back and joining us. Oh, anytime. Anytime, Larry. <laughs> well, I said I always, you know, I like to get into not to stereotype you. Mike, but I love to talk about these production issues because this is a thing where even with all the so much behind the scenes that fans now have, thanks to the internet, thanks to so many resources, there's still this quality sometimes of all those names, all those titles, sometimes it's a little impenetrable. And and you're so good about sorting that out because you've been there and lived it. And this is basically a script status report, early third season. Um you know, we one of the a couple of these things caught our eye. We were talking ahead of time, but what what comes to mind when you're looking at this? You know, the third season. You know, Fred yeah. Freiberger has the reputation not just with Star Trek, but of being the series killer <laughs> because yeah, he tends to get brought in late to in the finish season. them a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what? Yeah. And this is May second. So literally, they just got renewed in out of the famous Save Star Trek campaign just a couple months before. Got the fight like in March, I believe. So here they're getting started on scripts. They don't want to be behind the gun. That's the big no-no that killed them the first couple of seasons, always being, you know, ra racing the deadlines. So here's Fred trying to get ahead, you know, get ahead of the game and also impress his boss when he thinks that's still yeah. a thing to do. What what jumps out at you? 
there's so much in here that one, it speaks to the time because uh, they refer to uh, it's on the Mimeo. I have the Mimeo. Mm-hmm. Here's the Mimeo. I'm putting and, it and into Mimeo. I'm, I'm putting it into Mimeo. And there's there's a bunch of people who probably go like, what's that? What is the Mimeo? What's that secret thing? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's what they did before there were photocopiers. It was a weird piece of paper that you would have to have your production secretary or whoever was responsible type this thing up on this weird piece of paper and put it on this machine that you had to put a special liquid in and it could print in blue or pink. That was yep. about it. And you'd pour this thing in and you'd crank it out. And then you had to hang the pages up with, with uh, clips because if you stack them, they bleed through. <laughs> uh, it was, you know, the, the photocopy put the end uh, happily yeah. ended the mimeograph. Well, they, yeah, that's the, what they're talking about. The thing with the, uh, the, I remember those when I was like a little kid in grade school, and we said you could get high from those things. If that, oh, that could, yeah. they did have a black ink mimeo, but it was like uh, uh, I remember Gestetner was one of the brands, but it was like a stencil, and you had to type on that stencil. And then it, very, it did come out black. Difficult. Yeah, on this. Yeah. So basically, they're they saying they probably had that. They probably had that. Yeah, I mean, like in my in my memory, and now everything they're just throwing PDFs at people and they print them out on their copier. But in you know in the Berman <laughs> era, I will say what you worked with and what I remember, what you know, all our friends and colleagues worked with. People would people would work on in the beginning, early next gen, maybe not, but eventually by third fourth season they had transcended to computers. But it was still a big step to uh, when are we sending it to the print shop to get on paper and right. then change well, pace. That definitely had come to the end, come to an end by the time you hit the Berman era. The print shops were all closed, and that's because the photocopier existed. So what they but like the strip board, you could generate them in a computer, but you. They didn't have really have PDF. So before oh, no, right. there were yeah. yeah, so they they would take that strip board that you would physically print and put it together physically as a board you held in your hand and they would put it on the photocopier and copy it. Um and there was still the the idea of take it to the photocopier uh was the number one way you reproduce things. The, the PDF is a godsend. It's one of those things I think will be around for a very, very long time. It's like the wheel. Uh, it still works no matter what format comes along, and you can put anything in a PDF, and it can open on any kind of document reader. It's it's very well designed, a piece of a, of a software that's I don't think is going to go away, not in my lifetime. It's yeah. it's too good. It's too good. And you know, I that th- changed everything. Yeah, and I think about the PDF coming along for script distribution and ease mm-hmm. coming along about the time everything switched to digital cameras and suddenly we didn't have to have dailies on VHS tapes you know much less an old Started school to come out on DVDs. in yeah. the 60s the screening of let's all go down to the screen room and watch the dailies run on real film everybody goes because the they made together. one yeah right right <laughs> yeah much less you know that was cranking to get it done overnight to have it for the next day you know for everybody the to other, watch the other thing I find in here that that's just you know interesting um is you know the titles aren't what they're going to be so that threw me off a couple of times i was like what is i don't know that episode did that one not get made i had to ask you you know what what episode is this uh and you had the answers uh but i was curious about you know the titles that always Mm -hmm. interests me why did why did they change the title um and the other thing i would see um is that this shows that they were already thinking ahead and already had acquired freelance scripts, which you think had to have been submitted probably during the second season. 
Right? Yeah, they probably got, already had them. Yeah, I think they, there's a whole. You can go back and look at some some script. It's not quite the formalized machine that I know it was by the time of Next Gen and then on to today. The script status reports were like a weekly generated thing that showed you everything. What was old? What was in process? What status it was? What was brand new? Who was who was working on it? Who'd been cut off? Who'd it been reassigned to? And was it a draft? Was it a f- final draft? No, you know, was it story document? But. Um, the, there were some holdovers from second season, and mm-hmm. some, but they were listening to because you know we talk about the overall from the '60s to the '80s. They went from you, you see one, maybe two, maybe three. They squeezed Dorothy in as a script consultant, but Freiberger was the showrunner. They didn't use that term then. And then yeah. you had a second one, Arthur Singer or or Karabatsis or whoever was like maybe a number two person rewriting. And then uh, and doing maybe one of their own, but yeah, the bulk was was freelance. All that generation was freelance. And then by the '80s and '90s, they're listening to pitches. But you have six or seven or eight people on staff. And now, yeah. what do we do? We have 27 people on staff for 10 slots well, in a season. <laughs> well, now it's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now it's become an economic problem. You can, ha- you know. We want to get into that, but uh, fundamentally, the uh, the writers are in a difficult position because they don't do twenty six episodes, mm-hmm. so you can't count on getting that WGA check three or four times a year. You might be lucky if you have one or two, and suddenly you're trying to make ends meet in California right. on forty thousand dollars a year. And right. what happened to the age of the writers? So they all want to be producers, so they so they can get ancillary income from that, and it's it's a legitimate problem. I, I don't want to. You know, make light of it. It is a thing that must right. be remedied in the modern age of streamers. But there, there again, there's how a budget in-house industry Hollywood issue winds up rippling through the system and affects the way yeah. when people watch a show and they, my God, they've got so many producers on this show. How do they get anything done? What do they all do? Well, it's yeah. the people who would have been below the line before, maybe. Or just below. And well, it's I how think as writers, they would have yeah. they would have still been above the line. It's just. We know in Hollywood that there's a separation, that there are the nuts and bolts producers, right. and then there are the artistic producers. And the one who is both in television is the showrunner. They have to be both. And some showrunners are too artistic to to be good managers, and some are too busy being managers to be good artists. Uh, but what you want is that sweet spot where they really do understand the implication of costs and stress and hours of work from what they're writing right you need that person who can say you know what this this whole thing in the sewer has got to go it's too much uh and make an artistic decision that may have made it cooler uh but it has to go but in the streaming age uh this is changing the solution now is well we'll just shoot 20 days we'll just shoot i mean look at game of thrones Uh, game of thrones had a second unit second unit for one fight that constitutes six minutes of final film Thirty-two days long uh, to do one. Scene. Uh, okay, maybe yeah. was so maybe Game of Thrones wasn't the uh, ultimate bar. Yeah, but so we take that back to sixty-eight. So here's, you know, and the years have not been kind to Fred Freiberger, the <laughs> the opinion of most fans. But again, they were Paramount had bought them midway through the season, and if they were got through the second season by the time of a fresh slate for season three, 
and Gene stepping back as he did, yeah, uh, to look at things down the road to, to other and, projects. And reticence on the part of the uh, the network to even have it. Right, right, right. So we've yeah. just gone through this historic mail-in camp, but here's Fred not only dealing with Gene stepping back and and taking it on, and and maybe the writing on the wall about the future, but also Paramount putting the budget screws to th- they you know they, they eventually yeah. let Ralph Sininsky go for not yeah. his fault with a costume issue that should have been better scheduled but they're really paramount the studio when when <laughs> today you would never you know frank mancuso and onward everybody talks about oh star trek is the family jewels before even thought about franchises but boy right. in 1969 nobody looked at star trek as the family jewels of paramount it was that it was that weight that anchor around our necks it's costing us so much money and, well, they, they um, also, and that they was also a big was a effect holdover, on the budget right? Yeah, it's considered a holdover project from Desi Lu, so it's they weren't exactly a lot of champions, right? Um, And and certainly no one's saying like, "Wow, look at this fan response! Let's double their budget." Uh, (laughs) If you had a if you had a huge social media response uh, to anything, there is a you know a Squid Games great example, right? Mm -hmm. Was made on a tight budget, tight, tight, tight budget. Not the next one. The mm-hmm. next season, they're going to pour a lot of money into it, and and we'll see. This is where we get into the artistic. If will you, success if you spoil give too Rock much Hudson? Money doesn't ruin it. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Will exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. now looking at looking at Fred's uh, memo here, we were talking about what does you know the impact of budget and story. Now you were a nuts and bolts producer, but I know you have a lot of you're you're a guy that can cross over and talk about story, and you teach. You teach that. Yeah. So we're looking at some of these and we're going, oh, my God, Spock's brain and, and the children shall lead. Like, oh, they're starting off with winners here. Now, in essence, nothing became the Tholian web. And we just right. had Judy Burns on uh, talking about this, which is great. The answerer was taking a taking a leap, a chance on a new writer, because that became Joyce Muscat's uh, The Empath, mm-hmm. which is awesome. Shore Leave 2. He says here, have cut off Theodore Sturgeon, Ted Sturgeon, who famously was a sci-fi writer who was great, but no way nailing his concepts to a producible TV script and budget was like nailing Jello to the wall. It was, he could never get his arms around it. And, you know, a muck time, uh, short leave two or one was, was a notable example of that. So they just cut him off. It was too, it was too amorphous. Well, yeah. And also, you know, they've had a bad experience um, with a very successful episode with a, a, a writer who didn't, didn't want his stuff changed, didn't want to conform to the Star Trek universe. So they're probably a little leery about having a science fiction writer again that might cause them public grief. You didn't do it the way they wanted it done. So there's, there's probably a lot of salt in that. <laughs> the one that really got our attention, I think kind of sparked this whole conversation was The Last Gunfight, which was okay, uh, Spectre of the Gun. And yeah. we there's kind of a common wisdom, and I think Bob Justman talked about this, wrote about it, um, about how the surreal sets that the Melkotians come up with for Tombstone, Arizona, was a great budget saver. But it's we get a little, I don't know, what do you think about the comment here? Well, the, the one thing, okay, a couple of things, right? They, it, it almost sounds defensive. Like, um, hey, let's not build this entire Western set because, you know, then we'd have to have in Western costumes. And, and uh, you know, so wouldn't it be cooler and more sci-fi and more Gene Roddenberry if we, if we did it sort of like our town? Uh, the, it has this feeling like... Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I, the others are like, here's our status, here's our status, here's our status. This is the only one in this memo that feels like 
um, I got a little package I'm trying to sell you. Right. <laughs> and, and you get, listen, don't wait before you complain, hear me out. Uh, it's, it's a good idea. Because it, it's, it's real sci-fi. See, here's why. And you, you had to come up with, it sounds like before they wrote this, you notice it's the longest one. It has mm-hmm. the longest passage. And then they had to just say, Bob wants to do it this way. Bob thinks it's great. So when I read it, I feel like there's this, uh, there's a cell going mm-hmm. on here. Um, but it doesn't outright say, uh, hey, it's going to cost too much. And, and that may be because they didn't want it cut, or maybe it's because they don't want to hear that. Um, you, you're supposed to deliver on time. There may be a politic behind that, but there, to me, when I read it, I haven't, it's like, why some of you talking so much about this, right? <laughs> oh, sorry, my phone. Well, I, uh, it, I start off like thinking. like defending a position. Yeah, I start off thinking it's the one that's closest to being able to get into production and do a budget breakdown. But he does say, True. I understand you have some hesitation about this concept of, of the yes. surreal, the stylized sets. But, so, uh, so this means it has been a discussion about like, what mm-hmm. you want sets with no walls it's dumb mm-hmm. and uh, and someone had to fight back right yeah. it, that's what it feels like to me and i love it yeah and i love it um and and sometimes um you know my own personal experience with like shuttle pod one uh sometimes when they say hey oh, on enterprise we yes. gotta save the money on the enterprise mm-hmm. right gotta save the money uh, uh voyager has a couple of get well shows too uh what happens when you get to this situation where uh, we got to save the money. We're going to go over budget on the season. We got to save the money, get it back onto our overall budget. Is sometimes those are the best episodes mm-hmm. because the network doesn't stick their hands into it. Yeah. And they, and they let the actors act. They, or they're, yeah, they're characters. Razzle yeah. it up. Yeah. yeah. And, so, I, and I, for one, I know some people do not like uh, the OK Corral episode, uh, but I like it. I, I think, like, oh, this is a mind space. They haven't done that before. Uh, and you will see a lot of science fiction in television and, and others after that episode play around with the same concepts of being in a mind space. Now they have more money, they, they do different things, but I really, I really appreciated it. And I think that there is an artistic truth to the idea that every time they walk down a path, they end up in the same place. By having it in this thing that doesn't look real in the first place, um, you know it's never in your control. It never was in your control. And that's the, the, the part of the episode that really appeals to me as they're like uh, fighting against a thing that absolutely has control over them uh, and win. Right. And how do you defeat that? And, uh, if, and if you kind of veer a little bit into Twilight Zoney territory, then who's going to... Who's going to complain about that? Listen, Mike, I so love talking about this. Can you? I've got yeah. more. I've got more documents. I'd love to have you comment on. Can we have you come back sometime and talk more? Absolutely. Oh, I love Absolutely. that. I love that. This no this problem. this merging of the production and the budget and and looking back at some of the older episodes and then and bringing it up to date is just a wonderful mix. And I so love having you on to do that. So we'll, we never we'll, even got to ask if they were ghosts or not because the bullets went right through them. Okay, if we're going to get existential, we're going to have to continue this later. Because it was always in their mind. In their mind. In their mind. Absolutely. Well, it's in my mind to uh, always enjoy having you come by Trek Files and to have you back as soon as we can, okay? 
Oh, you got it. Okay. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Now, all of our documents and your chance to comment are available at facebook.com slash the Trek Files. Now, for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47. That's me at LarryNemechek.com. That's where you can link in now for all the new Trek Files swag and shirts at our Tee Public shop, too. Trek well, everybody. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.